Well, good morning, gentlemen. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ on this early Thursday drizzly morning. But the temperatures are above freezing, and we shall be grateful for that, for sure. Folks, we have been studying 1 Corinthians, and if you have been away for a while or you're just starting to come now after Christmas, let me catch you up to date. We're studying 1 Corinthians because we found as men, it's very difficult really to go to church or go to a Bible study and hear what you believe really is the truth and you kind of get rejuvenated in how you're supposed to live and then about the moment you step outside the door, all other kinds of forces come into your life. The first force that is hard to deal with is your own wicked self uh, and your own evil inclinations and your tendency uh, uh, to, to uh, be selfish and, and our lusts uh, where we desire uh, in this broken world and our own broken selves, we desire the things that are displeasing to God. So the first big challenge that we face is ourselves. And then secondly, we've got a world out there who's kind of living the way that our lust would like to live. And so we've got a nice little compatibility between uh, the lust of our flesh and the, and the ways of the world. And then if we're really a little bit more sophisticated, we realize we, there's a third entity here, and that's the devil himself trying to get this thing going between the lust in our flesh and the environment in the world. And it's a big battle. I mean, these are, these are, uh, uh, these are opponents that, that uh, are, are not to be trifled with. That's to be sure. So we find this a huge challenge uh, to try to live a life in accord with what we believe pleases God and, and to live it in this world. So this year we've been studying how to be a man of God, how to live a holy life in an unholy world. And there's hardly a better place in the Bible to turn to than 1 Corinthians because these folks were coming out of all kinds of, of wickedness in their background and they lived in a very uh, wicked environment. And Paul is calling them to the highest conceivable standard. He doesn't cut them any slack. He doesn't say, well, it's okay. You all grew up as pagans, so you know, have at it. Uh, we'll, we won't expect much out of you. No, he calls them to... This, the same kind of life that he himself is living because he says to them, I want you to imitate me. And Paul had been carefully cultivated as a Jewish rabbi. He had learned the Bible very, very carefully, was in a Jewish uh, upbringing, then got converted later, went out into the wilderness for 14 years to figure out what the Old Testament really means to learn the old, relearn the Old Testament from a christ centered perspective and of course that's what the new testament is it's paul's testimony of what the old testament really means from a christ-centered perspective and that's what the apostolic letters are all about so paul was a very carefully cultivated man and he's saying to these people who had not been as cultivated i want you to live the same way i live Woo, man so he has a battle on his hands if he's trying to if he's going to try to get these guys to live this way in the world in which they're living so in 1 Corinthians, which we actually know is his second letter to them, just like 2 Corinthians is actually his fourth letter to them, he is writing to them about two sets of concerns. One is some stuff he's heard from a person named Chloe and her household. So Chloe has told Paul about stuff that is known that's going on in Corinth. And Paul's going, oh my. Uh, you know, a guy is sleeping with his stepmother and bragging about it. And the whole church is bragging about it, saying, see how liberal we are? We believe in the grace of God, and so this doesn't matter. He's got all those kinds of problems. We've dealt with that in chapter 5. And he also hears about the divisions among them. They all are following different teachers, and he's saying, 
Don't you understand that nobody died for you for, but Jesus Christ, and He's the one that makes you one. So on and so on and so forth we've seen from the reports of Chloe's household. He also has received a letter from them to ask for points of clarification on several issues. That began in chapter 7 that had to do with marriage and singleness and then whether they should eat meat offered to idols and particularly whether they should join in the meals that were celebratory or part of the sacrificial service of the temple. And we've seen that he says, no way, Jose. And also to ask about the Lord's Supper, which he, of course, uh, talks to them about. And then they have questions about spiritual gifts. In chapters 12 through 14, Paul particularly addresses the question of spiritual gifts. We saw right before Christmas that he talks to them about the need for the diversity of gifts. We know the gifts are all in one body. We assume the unity of the gifts. And of course, the unity of the church. But he speaks to them about the need for the diversity of gifts. And one or two gifts are not supposed to be the gift, the Cadillac that everybody wants to have, and we ignore all the other gifts. He says, what's it like for an eyeball to be an eyeball and have, don't have the rest of the body around? You know, what's it going to do, roll around on the ground? How's the eyeball even going to get around? If the eye sees something, what's it going to do about it? It has no hands. So he shows us by analogy with a human body that every gift has to be connected to the other gifts. We also saw that he taught us in chapter 12 that the purpose of spiritual gifts is not as a sign of your spiritual power, that you happen to have particular gifts. The purpose of the gifts He's given you is for you to build each other up. So your gifts are to be given away in service to one another, and that's how you know that it is a spiritual gift. And particularly, He's concerned about the gift of tongues. Because in the first century, just like in the 20th century in particular, somewhat in the 21st century, but particularly in the 20th century, tongues was a gift that was dividing much of the church. And it's because people thought that if you had the gift of tongues, you had to be a more mature Christian. You were obviously seeking God more. You had more faith. And everybody else could have the gift of tongues if they only believed and had faith. That's the kind of message that was going on in the first century and in the 20th century. And we've seen how divisive that kind of talk is. Paul goes after that with everything in him. Now, in the midst of that argument about the need for the diversity of gifts, the purpose of the gifts to serve each other, how they have to be integrated together to be useful. None of the gifts functions on its own. That's the reason we all have to commit ourselves to the body so that our gifts for service are connected with other people's gifts for service so that truly the ministry of Jesus Christ, who's the only one who had all the gifts, goes forward in the community where we live. He then comes to this last verse in chapter 12 where we left off before Christmas And he says, but let me show you now a more excellent way. Now what he's going to do is take, it's a little bit of a side road, but it's actually the heart of the matter. But linguistically, it's a side road. Let me show you a more excellent way. He's not saying, let me show you another gift. He's just saying, wait, wait, let's come out of the paradigm of gifts and let's go over here and talk about lifestyle. Let's talk about your whole life. And so he's saying, as would be true with almost any area of ethical teaching, that in order to get it right, you have to have the big scope in mind. You have to have the big picture of what your life is all about. And when you get your life oriented in the right direction, then these other ethical issues fit in place. If I were to talk to you about giving, 
But I didn't talk to you about what God gave you in Christ and the theological meaning of giving. Then it's never going to work for you, no matter how generous you are. Because to, to honor and glorify God, it involves our motives and our intentions, the desires of our hearts. So your heart has to be stirred in order to be a genuinely Christian philanthropist. And the same way in exercising your gifts. We can talk about gifts and what they are and how to use them, how to build each other up and get all the moral principles right. But if our heart is not stirred, then we couldn't possibly be exercising gifts as Christians. That's the purpose of chapter 13. And of course, it's a lyrical chapter that folks love to read and uh, publicly and privately. Very common in wedding services, for example. Uh, it's a very, very familiar and beloved chapter of the Bible. Some people would say it's their favorite chapter in the Bible. But we want to remember its context and its purpose. It's there to teach us that this lifestyle is absolutely essential to the fruitfulness and effectiveness of the way that we do our service. And that would involve our service in our marriages, our service in our workplace and relationships, as well as, particularly here in this context, our service in the body of Christ. So with that background in mind, let's look at chapter 13 and read through these 13 verses. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Guys, uh, we, we all know uh, men who are eminently gifted people, very talented people, very intelligent people. And because of relational or ethical issues, they seem to be almost completely unproductive in what they're doing. And we look at it and say, what a shame. Here's a man with an enormous IQ. Here's a person with tremendous skills and talents. But because of 
the way they're living their lives, they're completely discredited and they're just put on the sidelines. Of course, I see that in my business a lot, don't I? People who are very fine teachers and who yet in some scandalous way are not abiding by the same teachings that they've been giving to other people. And here are people who are eminently gifted and have helped a lot of people and have even led people to Christ who find themselves now disqualified and unable for service. So often in your life you found, yes, you've got certain gifts and you know you're able to do something, but because of a lack of relational, uh, relational commitment in your environment, you've even found yourself to be ineffective in one way or another. Love is the sine qua non. Uh, sine qua non is Latin for that without which nothing. So if you have no love, you have nothing else. And that often happens in your environment, work environment, in your family, and in your churches. We see it over and over again. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He is saying, first of all, in verses 1 through 3, and you'll see that it's divided out in three paragraphs, or actually four paragraphs in your text. And uh, we're going to deal with it as three paragraphs. I think they've divided it in the right place. In verses 1 through 3, we see that godly love must be our top priority. It is the greatest mark of the Christian. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you speak in tongues. No. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you really know your Bibles. No. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. It is the, the, distinguishing trait of the Christian church. Above everything else, all of our knowledge, all of our ethical standards, it's the highest ethical standard, the mark of the church. Without love, you don't really have a Christian church. So Paul is saying it has to be our greatest priority. Now this is, this is radically different from the Greco-Roman world that all these men had come out of. They were at their Bible study. They were listening to this letter. They had a background that didn't teach them that this was the, the sine qua non of human existence or human importance. In the Greco-Roman world, philanthropy was valued. Love was considered a passion that was not even to be expressed in public. It wasn't part of the ethical life. It was just simply a human passion. Paul is elevating something that the Greco-Roman world had uh, subordinated as a mere passion. And Paul is saying it is the most important thing. It's more than a passion. It's an entire life. It's a way of thinking, a way of feeling, and a way of acting. And it's a fundamental commitment that you make in human relationships that's at the top of the pyramid. So Paul is challenging the environment that he lives in. And I think without a doubt, we're being challenged this morning by this same text to put this trait at the top of our lives. Are we loving people or not? Paul says this in verse 1, If you speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, you're just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. You're just a bunch of noise. Your profession of faith, noise. Everything you teach your children, noise. Everything you say to your wife to try to shape up your family, noise. It's all noise without love. Without love, nothing else sticks. Now you think about it, some of you in your own homes where 
your parents wanted you to live a certain way and had certain ethical standards, but you didn't feel really deeply loved by them. You know the noise Paul's talking about. Clanging cymbal. It's an annoyance. Everything they had to say was an annoyance because it wasn't coming to you in the context of a loving relationship. Same with your wife, with your children. Clanging gong, clanging cymbal, and a noisy gong without love. He says, not only is it above tongue speaking, that the very thing that you guys in Corinth considered to be the sine qua non of maturity, let me tell you, love is more important than what you thought was at the top of the pyramid. And it's without what I'm talking about, your tongue speaking is worthless and less than worthless. But he says, secondly, it's not only above tongue speaking, it's above miraculous powers. You say, really? I mean, I would think that if I had prophetic powers and I understood all mysteries and all knowledge, all mysteries and all knowledge, I could explain the Trinity to somebody? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be worth something? Paul says, no. Not without love. It wouldn't be useful to us at all if you could explain the Trinity without love. And a lot of us have had the Trinity explained to us without love. Some of you grew up in a very moralistic environment where the conventions of the day were imposed upon you. And maybe still you feel that way. And without love, you know what you do with that. You just react against it. Paul says not only is it above all the miraculous powers, but it's above martyrdom. You say, surely there's something I can do to make up for the lack of love because I'm just not a very loving person. Surely I can do something. Maybe I can give all my money away. Maybe I can go die in battle for my people. Paul says, if you do that without love, you're an inferior person. Oh, he doesn't say that. He says, you're a big fat zero. You're a nothing. If you have not love, you have, you have not everything. If you have not love, whatever you felt you had, it's nothing. And you're nothing. Paul is putting this in the strongest conceivable terms so that they come to grips with the fact that they have elevated something that is not meant to be elevated. And in elevating their spiritual gifts and putting themselves forward, they have eliminated the one thing that makes them the people of God in the church. And so often we find ourselves doing that. I mean, what, what is the modern day equivalent? Well, some of us think, you know, I mean, we all know people who really know how to pray. I remember there was a guy in seminary who had a really deep, resonant voice. And he just knew how to pray and how to pause at just the right moments. It was a very passionate prayer. We all love for him to lead in prayer. And I'm thinking, what a danger that is to be able to pray like that in public. Because now that man's a spiritual man because he can really pray in public. Some people are preachers and teachers. And in your church experience, some of you as teachers, you're known as, boy, that really great Sunday school teacher. I mean, everybody wants to be in your Sunday school class. Everybody wants to be led by you because you really know how to communicate. I mean, you got this stuff. And what does that become? That becomes the definition of your Christian experience. And Paul says if you have that and don't have the real essence of the Christian experience, you're a big fat zero. And yet we think because we pray or we teach or we preach that that's it. Or some, some of us would say, no, what really makes me a great Christian, where I built my reputation is I know my Bible, man. And I've read a bunch of good theology books too. 
And if anybody asks me about the hypostatic union, I can tell them for 2,000 years everything that's been said about the hypostatic union and which conciliar meetings uh, determined uh, the relationship between the deity and the humanity of Christ and exactly how they worded it. Woo, man, you're an important Christian. No, you're big fat zero without love. That's what you are. And sometimes we feel like, well, I, I, my Christian experience, I mean, I'm not a great person myself, I admit it, but boy, I married a great woman. She's a moral person. She loves the Lord. And she prays for me, and thank God for that, because I know I need it. You're a big fat zero. Because all you're talking about is a relationship you've got with somebody. You had a godly mother, a godly daddy. You married a wonderful woman. And, of course, we joke about it. And, of course, all of us knuckleheads know we married over our heads anyway. That's fine. But if that's your claim to fame, or, you know, even worse, well, you know, I was out in Colorado. I had a little, had a little talk with James Dobson. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, and then, uh, you know, Adrian Rogers used to be my very good friend. And, uh, you know, we talk about all the people we know. Yeah, well, you surely you're a Christian because look at all these important people you know and that you wouldn't be their friend if you really weren't a great Christian. So we all identify ourselves in different ways with the Christian life. Or perhaps, well, you know, I serve on the board of the Neighborhood Christian Center. Been on there for 10 years. Well, shoot, you must be a fabulous Christian because, you know, Effie Ballard Johnson wouldn't put up with you if you weren't a great Christian, right? And so we all have our ways of connecting ourselves and reassuring ourselves. Listen, it's a big fat zero. Without love, love is the essence of it all. And it's not that you want to be known for your love. You just simply want to be a loving person. And there's where you stake your life. That's the biggest mark and the only sure mark that you belong to Jesus Christ. That's how we know. Not who you know or how much you know. It's who in heaven you know, namely Jesus Christ and His love. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying Godly love must be our top priority. Now, when we move to verses 4 through 7, we learn that it's not just love, it's a certain type of love. Because godly love is deeply virtuous. So, we all have our definitions of love. And, uh, you know, in, of course, in our culture, where it's a very romantic culture, coming out of the uh, sort of uh, humanistic and... Uh, ir- uh, sort of anti-rational or irrationalism of the 19th century, rooted in the late 18th century even, a sort of an irrational uh, century that led in the 20th century where uh, we kind of abandoned reason and went to feelings. And so now everything we do is feelings-based almost in our culture, including the definition of love. And of course, if a young man says to a young lady, I love you, here's what he means. Man, you got a great figure. <laughs> uh, I'd like to hang on to you. I'd like one day to go to bed with you. Or, boy, I bet you're a great cook. Or, man, you're the sweetest person I ever knew. You know, when, when I'm talking with brides and grooms before they get married, they've gotten engaged, not married yet, and I ask both of them, so, why is it that you're getting engaged? And there's nothing wrong with this. I'm just making a point. In every case that I've ever experienced, This person says something about this person. That's why I'm getting engaged. She's beautiful. She's become my best friend. I just feel all warm and fuzzy when I'm around her. I think she's a wonderful Christian. I think we'll make a great family together. It's all about her. Well, of course, you'd be an idiot if you didn't marry somebody that you you thought was beautiful 
and with whom you thought you'd have a good time and have a fruitful relationship. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm just making the point that when you say, I love you to her, it's because of something in her. Paul's saying, Nick's all that. Christian love is different. Christian love has to do not with the beauty of the object. It has to do with the beauty of the subject. And I've never had a guy say to me, I want to marry her because I want to lay down my life for this woman. I, I, I love her because God has given me a love to love the unworthy. <laughs> I've never had a guy say that to me. Never had a guy say that to me. I love her because sinners need to be loved. Because this woman needs grace. I've never had a guy say that to me. I'm not sure he even should try, but here's what Christian love is. Christian love is generated not by the aesthetics of the object of the affection. It's generated by something internally in the subject that is the person doing the loving. That's one of the huge differences between eros, the Greek word for love, that was most common in Greek culture, and agape, which is the word being used here, which is the word that the Christians adopted and kind of made their own and redefined it. And agape differs from eros, from which we get the word erotic, in that it's a, it's a result of the subject of, uh, of love rather than the object of love. In erotic love, whether you're looking at a work of art that you admire, or a sunset that's beautiful, or a woman that's beautiful, that's all erotic love. Because it's an appreciation for the beauty within the object itself. But agape is the love that is generated in your own heart. And Paul is saying, this type of love is the distinguishing trait of the Christian church. And you can feel it when you're around it. Because it's unconditional. It doesn't matter who you are. The love's coming to you anyway because it doesn't have to do with you. It has to do with the person who's loving you. And they give it to you freely. So it's not conditioned on who you are, how important you are, how good-looking you are, how old or how young you are, what racial background you have, what socioeconomic background you have. It has nothing to do with that. It comes from a genuine love that's offered to you unconditionally. That's what the apostle is describing here, as we'll see in these traits. Now let's look at these traits, and they're divided into little categories that you wouldn't have noticed as we just read through quickly, but in verse 4, you see two positive traits, patience and kindness, and then in uh, the, the rest of 4, that's 4b, through 6, you see eight descriptions of what love is not. And then in verse 7, you pick up with these four staccato tap type descriptions that, that what they have in common is, is the word all things. Four of those that involve all things. So... Paul, some people suggest that Paul picked up some well-known wording in the church of his day and inserted it here. I don't think so. And I'll show you why. Because his description, especially when you get to 4b, where he says love does not, love it is not, and so on, he is describing their Corinthian behavior. He's, he's, I mean, he's meddling with these people. He's not just preaching, man. He's, he's in their face. He's right in their grill. And he's saying, basically what he's saying to them is love is not what you're doing. Whew. 
And we'll, we'll see that in just a moment real clearly. So I think this is very definitely Pauline language coming right out of this circumstance. And Paul himself, full of the love of Christ, is seeking to move them in that direction and he's very passionate about it. Well, let's, let's begin with the two positives. He says, love is patient and kind. Now, folks, uh, we know what these words mean. And what they mean in English is what they mean in Greek. I mean, there's no real secret here. Patience. Love is patient. To live above with those we love, that will be glory. To live below with those we know, that's another story. Uh, That's the way it goes. Living with those that we know, and to live with those that we know requires patience. And Paul says, without patience, you're not exercising the love of God. Why not? Because impatience is reacting to the object of your affection. And your impatience is because you have lost your erotic love for one person or another. I don't mean erotic in sexual sense. I mean erotic in the philosophical sense. You had erotic love and it ceases to be lovely and so now you're impatient and you cease to love it or him or her. Godly love generated on the inside loves regardless of the behavior over here and so you remain patient with the person because your love for them was never conditioned upon their performance in the first place. So Paul is saying love, agape, is patient. Patience. Patient. (laughs) I'll get it. And it will persevere through the misbehavior of the object of your affection. Now you say, how in the world does a person do this? I just fail all the time. Well, look, uh, actually, agape love is the result of an erotic love. Let me explain this. The love that's generated in you actually is coming from an erotic love. And that love is the love you have for God. The love you have for God actually is erotic because your love is now not based upon the subject, it's based upon the object. And you're gazing upon God and you're saying, Oh my, how awesome, how beautiful, how truly good. How loving. And you're lost in wonder, love, and praise. That awe and admiration and reverence and fear and love takes up residence in your heart. And that becomes who you are. You're a person who truly admires, erotically, if you will, philosophically, the love of God. Because John says, hearing is love, not that you love God, but that He loved you. He loved you first. And you're aware of that first love. The first love is not your love. The first love is His love. So indeed, you are reacting to the love of another in your love for God. So there's where erotic love actually is legitimate. Now you take that experience of your loving Him because He loved you, and now you love someone not because they love you. You love someone because He loved you. That's the key. You break the quid pro quo with your human neighbor. Quid pro quo just means this for that. It means I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You break the bondage of the quid pro quo this way, and you get the quid pro quo going this way. 
So because He has done this for you, now you do this for Him, and part of what you're doing for Him is loving your neighbor. So your love for your neighbor is your response to erotic love, or it is your erotic love in a certain way. Now, it's agape love, but that's the only way you can love God is in response to His perfections. And then that enables you to deal with the imperfections of your neighbor because of the perfections of God expressed toward you. Is this making sense? So that's what enables you then to be the subject who loves the unworthy. Is because you're the unworthy who has been loved by the object, God Himself. You've experienced that love for yourself. Now that's the first an abiding principle in exercising agape love, you must receive agape love. You have to experience it. You have to know that you're loved that way. Then you have it to give away. So that's the doctrine, if you will. That's the reality that enables you to love the unlovable or the unlovely. Now there's a second secret. The way in which you actually carry out this love, you'll find this huge battle Someone has dissed you and you want to diss them right back. And you're you're in this battle. What do I do? Here's what you do. You look back to God, not only who loved you by sending His Son to love you and to provide for you eternal life when you didn't deserve it, but who now is alive in and through you. He's actually working through you. He has a very intimate relationship with you and He will exercise His power, His loving power through you to your neighbor. And you cannot love your neighbor without it. You can have all the doctrine correct. You can understand and know and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you and still not be able to love your neighbor. I'm telling you. I know a lot of people who understand the doctrine and they don't love their wives. Here's why. They are not casting themselves upon the mercy of God and asking Him to do the loving through them to His wife. It's an out-of-body experience. Why? Because your body has fallen. Your flesh is fallen. Your flesh rages against all this. You have to depend upon the Lord and get outside of yourself and say, Lord, come on, please help me. I'm your servant. I'm desperate. I cannot do this on my own. This person is bugging the stew out of me. How do I possibly love them and give myself to them? You've got to take over God. So you see the two big secrets. One is understanding the work of Jesus Christ in your place. And the second secret is understanding the power that's available to you when you cast yourself on His mercy and ask for His help. And Jesus just simply puts it this way. He says, you wicked fathers, you know how to love your sons. Now how many of you who are sinful fathers, if your son asked for for a fish, would give him a snake? If he asked for bread, you'd give him a rock. How many of you would do that to your child? Of course not. And you're wicked and you wouldn't do that. He says, well, how much more will your father then give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So you're His child and you're asking for His help, you're asking for the Holy Spirit, and He's going to go, uh-uh. And He's going to give you a devil instead? Or leave you to yourself? What father would do that? Certainly not God. So if you are in Christ and you're asking for His help, He promises to give you help. But you've got to get outside of your normal routine and your normal powers, your normal moral powers that you have, and realize they're fallen and they're not going to work for you without alien help. So we have an alien righteousness from Christ and alien power from the Holy Spirit. That's how we get the job done. Now that's, that's really what Paul's teaching here. This is love. 
And without it, we're nothing. And we can't do it on our own. We have to have the love of Christ and the loving power of God to get it done. God is patient. You want to know the essence of what it means to be patient and kind? is to be like God. Paul says, let me tell you how patient God is. He took the worst of sinners, myself, who murdered people because they were Christians. And He had mercy upon me. Do you think Paul would ever make an excuse for being impatient for himself when he looks at the patience of God and how God had had mercy on him? That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1, somewhere in there. And Paul talks about the patience of God and the kindness of God. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, when the loving kindness of God appeared, He saved us. We were saved by the kindness of God. Kindness is to seek the benefit and the welfare of another person. And that's exactly what God has done for us. So here's what Paul is saying. To love is to be like God. And furthermore, you remember how Jesus taught on this matter in the Sermon on the Mount. We studied that just last year. At the end of chapter 5, he says, look, the pagans teach that you should love your friends. Everybody teaches that. And he says, the pagans do that. How do you think that's going to distinguish you as Christian people from non-Christian people? It doesn't. Everybody loves people who love them. Everybody. Out of self-protection. But he says, here's what's unique to you. You love your enemies. Why? He tells us why. Because God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And He causes His Son, S-U-N, to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. God loves His enemies. And furthermore, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, that's what you were. You weren't born into this world as a friend of God. You were born into this world as an enemy. Do you know why you're saved? Because God is patient and kind with His enemies. So what God is saying to us is, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you're to be like God. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, does that mean that we only go to heaven if we're perfect? No, of course not, or nobody goes. You know, uh, one time the preacher said, uh, anybody here know anybody? Is anybody here perfect? No hands went up. Anybody here know anybody who's perfect? He was making a rhetorical point, of course. Anybody know anybody who's perfect? And one guy in the back raised his hand. He said, oh, really? Who's that? He stood and said, my wife's first husband. <laughs> Other than your wife's first husband, there's nobody perfect. So God loved people who were not only imperfect, He loved people who were actually out to undermine, unravel, and destroy His kingdom. Now, those are the only people who are in His church, people who are doing that. And those are the ones He loves. And He says, my sons, do you realize you're my, you're my sons? You're in my business. Let me tell you about the family business. The family business is to go love enemies and to win them by that love. And then they go love their enemies. This is the family business, and I've called you into the family business. Now, will you please take up the family business? That's what your father is saying to you. And that's our calling. And of course we fall short. And so what do we do? We confess that we've fallen short. And we ask for alien power to help us get going again in the next moment so that we can be about our Father's business. That is our Father's business, loving enemies. So let's get about the Father's business. 
They said about Archbishop William Temple that he was kind to everybody. But if you really wanted him to have a special favor for you, a special love for you, make him think that you were his enemy. And you would get special attention from Archbishop William Temple. Here's a man who knew the high calling. Go after your enemies with a special love. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 12. You'll see it throughout the Bible. This is our calling. Called to the highest conceivable standard. C.S. Lewis, of course, delighted in this. He said at one point that the gospel of Christ is the great equalizer. He said because in the gospel, we tell the, the savage in the middle of the jungle who's never heard of Christ, to be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we tell the Oxford Don, eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's the great equalizer. And no matter what your background is, no matter how you were loved or not loved by your parents, no matter what kind of struggles and strife you've been in, no matter what kind of marriage you have, what kind of children or grandchildren you have, what kind of parents you have, all it doesn't matter. You have the same calling as the guy sitting next to you. And that's to be ye therefore perfect by loving your enemy just as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the calling. Patience and kindness. Secondly, B, this virtue is others-oriented. He says, love does not envy or boast. The word boast just means braggart or windbag. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. So in verses 4 and 5, 4b and 5, as I've said, you see here the sins of the Corinthians. Take, for example, when he says love does not envy. Well, just look at chapter 3, verse 3, or chapter 4, verse 18, and you'll see the problem. It was envy with the Corinthians. That's the reason they were dividing. It was envy. And when he says it does not boast... Well, if you look in chapter 3 or chapter 8 or chapter 14, they boasted about their knowledge. They boasted about their wisdom. They boasted about their gifts. He says that's not love. When you're putting yourself forward based upon the gifting that you have. After all, where did you get these gifts? Did you develop them? Did you come up with the idea of them? No, they were given to you, so why are you boasting? He says love does not boast. When he says love is not arrogant, he's talking about them. When he says love is not rude, What's he talking about? He's talking about inappropriate behavior. Like in chapter 10, he's already been through rudeness. When you just ignore the spiritual life of your neighbor and you're tempting them to violate their own conscience. It's completely arrogant and rude. And then when you look at insisting on your own way, once again, you see the same behavior in chapter 10 and 11. People who would just go to the Lord's Supper. They'd go early because they were of the upper class. They could get off early. They'd eat with their friends. And by the time everybody else in church got there, they were already drunk with the wine. Just insisting on their own way. So Paul is intentionally picking out all the behavior that he's been talking about for 12 chapters. And he says, love is not all this stuff you all are doing and talking about. Look, we, we know in the business community that you're going nowhere if you don't face brutal facts, right? If you ignore uh, the bad news, uh, you're just going to get more bad news. You've got to face brutal facts. Paul is having them face brutal facts. The way in which you've been living your Christian experience, experience is not a loving experience, and without love, 
we're nothings. That's what he's saying to them. Woo! And then he says in 5b that this virtue is not only patient and others-oriented, it's self-denying. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now when he says it is not irritable or resentful, here's what he's saying about love. It not only does not perpetrate evil toward the other person, but it reacts to other people's evil in a particular way. What's the normal way that we react to other people's evil? Well, resentment, irritability, revenge. And he's saying, that's not for you. Road rage is out. You deal with this. And a lot of us have floating anger. We're angry for some reason that goes way back in the history of our lives. And somebody says the least little thing and it triggers it. And they're wondering, why do you get so angry? Well, it's not because of what they said. It's because they triggered something way back here. Here's what the Christian does. He asks the gospel, he asks God in the gospel to come into his life and begin to heal him now and in the past so that as he goes forward, he's able to respond to evil with good. Paul says in Romans 12, you're to bless those who persecute you and pray for them. You respond to evil with good. You overwhelm evil with good. This is the Christian way. Now, guys, look, we're not to walk out of here and all feel like failures because none of us are doing this. We're only failures if we refuse to repent. And repentance says, Lord, I accept the fact that I've been living in resentment and irritability and I've been responding to evil with evil and I want you to take over my life and help me. There you go. That's a repentant life. You're not a failure if you do that. You really cast yourself on His mercy and are asking for His love. So it's self-denying. Keep going and look at verse 6 and you'll see it's also righteous. He says, real, real agape love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Our love is not mere human loyalty. It's not tribalism. So that I'm going to, you know, get in tight with all those guys in the club, and we're going to stand together come hell or high water, no matter what. We're going to stand together and support each other. Yeah, right into prison. We've seen that happen a lot. You can even see in the civil realm, people hang together and they hang together. Uh, Here's the point. Paul says, no, your love is always conditioned. It's conditioned upon your first commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if someone expects you to violate your relationship with Christ in order to be close to them, then you can just say goodbye to them. And it's not because you don't love them. It's because you do love them. Look what Paul says. Real agape does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Real love means that I want my family member or my best friend or the one that I'm working with at work, I want the best for him. And the best for him is the truth. So I'm not going to collaborate with him in a lie. I'm not going to collaborate with him in a crime. I'm not going to collaborate with him in hatred or revenge. There's going to be a rugged independence in all of my loving relationships. And that independence comes from abject dependence upon Jesus Christ. He's the only one I have to have. And I'll do anything to have Him. And I won't do anything to have anybody else. I'll only do anything to love them. And if they don't love back, that's their decision to make. My decision is to love them in Christ. And that's the way we do it. We rejoice in the truth. We do not collaborate in evil with our friends. 
We're willing to lose friends in order to hang on to our friend. And we do it lovingly. Because if we're setting a godly example, we're doing the best that we can for our friends even if they're making it difficult for us. Verse 7 shows that love perseveres. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And so your 17-year-old who just totaled your car says, Dad, the Bible says love believes all things. Give me the keys, please. You say, you know, this boy's making a point. That's a tough theological point. I don't know how to answer that. What does it mean to believe all things? If I love this kid, don't I believe everything about him? Okay, put on the pause button just a moment. No. Real love means that you're caring for this boy. You're doing what's in his interest. And believe all things means that you're going to trust him as he becomes trustworthy and as your expression of trust in him builds him up and doesn't tear him down. And if he happens to total cars uh, as a natural habit, you're probably not loving him very much to give him the keys to his own execution and go out and drive again without uh, a little repair work on his uh, uh, driving abilities. So, Trust all things means that you want to trust Him. You're looking for the opportunity to trust Him. But you're not naive so that you end up destroying Him. So that's what it means to hope all things, believe all things. You're looking for the opportunity to trust Him. Now, folks, if you've done something wrong and somebody caught you red-handed, you know whether they want you to be exonerated or not. You know if they want you to recover from that failure or not you know if they're looking for another opportunity to trust you or not. You can tell almost intuitively whether they're on your side. When you determine that they're on your side, you can normally receive from them discipline in your relationship with them. There are certain things they won't do until you've proven that you're able to handle certain things. So the issue is, are you on their side? Are you willing to believe when they've shown you a new track record? Are you hopeful for them? That's what love does. It's always looking for the next opportunity to invest in that person when they show themselves trustworthy in the sense that it's even good for them to be trusted with that particular issue. Now lastly, godly love not only is necessary and has a particular character, but godly love endures forever. He says love never ends. Now here's what he's doing as he closes out this wonderful chapter. He's basically closing out and saying, look, let's just look at how glorious it is, even from the eschatological perspective, the perspective of the end of time. He says, you folks are really wrapped up in your own individual spiritual gifts, but let me tell you something. Prophecies are going to pass away. Tongues are going to cease. You say, really? When? When Jesus Christ comes back. And we're people who live in this age, but always have our mind on the next age. We're, li- we're people who are living in view of eternity. That's one of the ways in which Christians can be distinguished. And he says, well then think about eternity. Where are you headed? There are no tongues there. There are no prophecies there. Who needs them? You're in the presence of Christ Himself. So don't get caught up with penultimate things and exchange those for the ultimate things. The ultimate thing is love because it never ends. So he's not saying... so. So gifts are irrelevant. He's not saying that. Gifts are important. Because you don't live in heaven right now. You live right here. And you need gifts. You need prophecies. You need tongues. or if You need ways in which you communicate with the Lord. You need all that. So he's not dissing it for the here and now. He's just saying, let's put it in perspective. 
The things that you value so much, remember, they're, they're bound to this life. And then he says in verses 9 through 12, yet eventually love displaces the spiritual gifts. For we, now everything that we do is partial knowledge, partial experience. It's like looking in a mirror, or if you will, it's the comparison of looking at someone in a photograph and having them in front of you in reality. And he's saying, you're, you're, you know in part right now, but one day Jesus Christ will be right in front of you. And let me tell you what will continue in that relationship. Love. And then lastly, in verse 13, he says, love supersedes all the other virtues. He says, you know how important faith and hope are. Faith is the very thing that connects you to God. Hope is the thing that enables you to endure all your struggles in this life. Hope and the knowledge of the return of Jesus Christ, how important that is. And he said, let me tell you how great love is. It's greater than faith and hope. Because when we see Jesus Christ, we will see Him with our own eyes. We'll exchange faith for sight, if you will. And we'll no longer hope for things in the future. We'll be experiencing the future. But love continues on. So, gentlemen, here's what he's saying. Please understand how profoundly important love is in your life. It is the one thing that you take with you. (laughs) It's the one thing you're doing now that carries right on into eternity. So without it, we're nothing. And with it, everything. So focus your life on the real meaning of love. And you'll find in the discussion questions in your mentoring relationships in your small groups, we really want you to be thinking through what is the nature of this love? And how can I experience it more deeply? Let me close with this. Uh, Jonathan Edwards in his famous book, Charity and Its Fruit, which is a book on just this one chapter in 1 Corinthians. He probes the question of what makes the church like heaven. He's just in, he's just in his own mind. And you know Edwards' mind. It just, it's just immense in intellect and in the ability to imagine. And he's just thinking, what would make the church on earth most like heaven itself? And he comes up with this conclusion. Love. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the love of Jesus Christ that You've given to every one of us in the Gospel. Help us this morning to receive that love anew. And having received it, to give that love to others around us, beginning with those who are closest to us, those who know us the best. And Lord, uh, if any of our funerals take place anytime soon, Uh, we would pray that the way that folks would remember us more than anything else is that we love people and we love you. And may that be our legacy. May it be our focus. May it be our ambition above everything else. Help us, Lord. We cast ourselves upon your loving mercy today. In Jesus' name, amen.